morning to each of you. So this morning, uh, we will baptize uh, four believers. I'm not going to say new believers because uh, they didn't just become believers. Uh, Bethany and Winter and Winston and Vincent. And um, this sermon is for them. And it's for all of us. And uh, although I'm not sure how well they'll be able to listen, uh, but I hope they can. So I'm going to look at uh, five passages of Scripture this morning that talk about baptism. And uh, some of the comments on, I make will be perhaps somewhat uh, maybe technical. I'm trying to be uh, biblical. I want to talk about the meaning of baptism, what the Bible says baptism means, what it represents. And I will have uh, a few comments about uh, in relation to the meaning of baptism uh, what what happens in baptism. And maybe I'll say also something about what I don't know. Okay, so I'm starting with uh, Mark 16, uh, 14 to 16, and uh, two of those verses are on the board here. And in your, in your bulletin on the back, uh, there's, I have a summary statement for each of these five passages. And uh, for this passage, I have the summary that baptize those who have heard and believed the gospel. And then go preach, baptize, uh, I'm sorry, go preach, believe, be baptized, be saved. So the verses, Mark 16, 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. So I'll, I'll just start by saying that these verses were used by our forefathers, by early Anabaptists, as somewhat of a proof text to defend the position that baptism should follow a proclamation, a confession of believers. In other words, there ought to be a proclamation of the gospel and then a response of faith. And then baptism following that. 
Uh, and the, the reason for that, the order that, they saw the order that, in that, and, and the reason they claimed that is it, it, it promoted the idea they held, and they got this idea from these verses, that, that infant baptism or baptism of people who did not profess faith in Christ was not a valid baptism. So this scripture and some of the other passages, the four pa other four passages, teach that baptism should follow preaching of the gospel or should follow a response to the proclamation of the gospel, that is, of the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the good news. That's, that's the gospel, good news. And so there ought to be, the person should have heard this, not just in a sermon, but other times. And, and, their, and baptism should, be, should follow their response of faith to this proclamation of the gospel. And so any, uh, any baptism that was done apart from or without uh, a response like a faith to the gospel message they said was invalid. So baptism of infants or baptism of someone who does not have a basic understanding of the gospel and of their need for and surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord is not a valid baptism. And Mark 16 also teaches that the person who does not believe will be condemned or will be lost or will experience judgment. Okay, the next passage is Romans 10, uh, 8 to 10. Uh, my summary of these verses is when the word is preached and the heart believes and the mouth confesses that God raised Jesus from the dead, God saves. So the verses read like this, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So this statement in verse 8, that the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, is a quotation from the Old Testament, is a quotation from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. And the context for the verse in Deuteronomy 30 is Moses telling the children of Israel that God has not 
forsaken them, that he is near them, that he will circumcise their hearts if they will turn to him, that God will bless them if they obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Moses also told them that the instruction and commandment he is giving them is not too mysterious for you. And it is not far off. It's not far away. The message, the word, of God is not far away in heaven and it is not on the other side of the sea but the word this is a quote but the word is near you very near you in your mouth in, in your heart that you may do it so Paul is saying here in Romans the word of the Lord is near Paul's hearers because the gospel is being preached to you. And so they could hear it with their ears and believe it with their heart and confess it with their mouth. So question, what does Paul say we are commanded to believe and confess? And we are commanded to believe and confess the word of faith, which Paul preached. We are commanded to believe in our hearts that God has raised Christ from the dead and confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus. And to confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus is uh, to agree with, to, to confess, the meaning of the word is to say the same thing as means to agree with God, to confess, to agree with God, to say the same thing as God says about his son, that Jesus is Lord, risen from the dead. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that I am not uh, my own master. I am not God, I am not the ruler of my life. There is one who is above me. There is one that I am dependent on. There is one who can save me and lead me and sustain me, and it is not me. This is the meaning of confessing that Jesus is Lord. I did not have uh, the final say in my life. And I trust God and I trust Jesus, the Lord. So Jesus is my master, the one who tells me what is true, the one who tells me 
who I am and what is best for me to do with my life. How it is best for me to live. And uh, Jesus the Lord is telling me these things for my own good. He is not telling me these things because, oh my, now he is in control and has me under his thumb and can make me squirm and do whatever he wants. That, that is not Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, who died for us. He didn't die for us so that he can uh, get us under his thumb and make us miserable. trying to uh, describe a little bit what it means for Jesus to be Lord according to the scripture and not according to some of our it feels true to me that now he has me under his control and he will make me miserable so in conversion we are trusting Jesus to be our savior we are trusting Jesus to cleanse us from sin And we are confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is uh, salvation. And this is, um, I have the word prerequisite in my notes. Uh, Let's see. This is what is necessary uh, preceding baptism. Trusting in Jesus to be my Savior to cleanse me from sin, and to be my Lord. So uh, Winston and Winter, Bethany and Vincent have heard and believed the good news or gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, Jesus Christ died and rose again to be their Savior and Lord. They have believed this in their hearts. And they have confessed this with their mouths. John and I heard them uh, do this in instruction class, and they no doubt have done it at other times as well. So I want to uh, offer one clarification about their believing and confessing of Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'm not trying to undermine the value of believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. That's not what I want to do by what I'm going to say. Uh, But I do believe that for some people, what they think... uh, Believing Jesus is Savior and confessing Jesus as Lord, they see it, they, they feel great pressure that that has to be a perfect thing they've done. So what I want to say is that neither they nor any of us, not a single one here, can uh, believe and confess. I feel a little cautious, but I'm going to say it. None of us here uh, can believe and confess perfectly. And the reason we can't is we are not God. And we cannot know everything 
that is true about ourselves or about God or about faith or about Jesus being our Lord. And since we're not God, we cannot put into words a perfect confession. So what we can do is respond with our hearts to the gospel message as we understand it. And we can trust in Jesus as we understand it. And we confess him to be our Lord as we understand it. And then as time goes by, we can grow in our understanding and continue to confess our faith and that he is our Lord. And <clears throat> that, is what, that is what all of us have needed to do throughout our lives as we got older, including myself. And uh, this is part of the growth of the Christian life, in the Christian life. The next passage I have is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And uh, this passage is more directly related. The next three are more directly related to baptism specifically. So 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, my summary is that baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ saves. So the verses read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, I have a number of notes about those verses. Uh, I don't have this in my notes. But I have a number of notes about these verses, but while I was reading those verses, I was thinking, okay, um, <clears throat> you're going to have a difficult time explaining those verses. They are very difficult. That's what I was thinking while I was reading. So here it goes. So the context for these verses is don't return evil for evil. Uh, these verses in 1 Peter 3 about Christ's suffering 
for us appear in the context of Peter's instruction that believers should not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Uh, that's 1 Peter 3, 9. Peter says, don't be afraid of anyone's threats, nor be troubled if you are doing good. But sanctify or set apart the Lord God, or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or another way to say that always be ready to give an apology that's the word or explanation of your hope the ex explanation being that you have set Christ apart as Lord and this is the reason for your hope And be able to do this with anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So then, uh, he said, Christ suffered and died for our sins. The just, righteous Christ suffered and died for the unjust, unrighteous sinners, us. And the just, sinless Christ suffered and died, died for the unjust sinners. So Christ was put to death in the flesh, in the body, but his spirit was alive. And these verses say, uh, a rather peculiar or mysterious thing, he was alive, put to death in the body, but alive, and preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient during the days of Noah. People to whom Noah was preaching while he was preparing the ark prior to the flood. So I'm just going to say exactly what this means. I do not know. It's not clear. But it seems to be a statement that Christ declared his triumph over the devil and death to those who were disobedient while Noah was preparing the ark. I think that's what he's saying. That's not the main point of the passage, though. And Peter says only eight people were saved through water by the ark. And a multitude of disobedient people drowned in the flood because they were not in the ark. And eight people were in the ark. And their drowning was God's judgment for their disobedience, for their rejection of God as Lord. And those who were in the ark were in water too, but the ark saved them. So, 
the implication is that whatever I'm going to say this slowly. The implication is that whatever being in the water symbolizes, that is what saves you. Whatever being in the water symbolizes. Then I want to say that being in water doesn't just mean being being immersed in water or having water poured on the head in water baptism. That's not all it means. Being in the water means more than that. I will talk more about that in a little bit. So 1 Peter 3.21 says that just as the eight people survived the water of judgment because they were in the ark, today people are saved if they experience baptism through the resurrection of Christ. And the question, I have many questions as I'm studying verses like this, the question I have is, what kind of baptism is this talking about? Is Peter talking about the water of baptism saving them, or is he talking about identification and union with Christ's death and resurrection saving them? So Peter says, the baptism that saves, after that statement, he says, the baptism that saves is not an external washing of the body to remove dirt, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, or a good faith pledge of allegiance to Christ as Lord, a willingness to get in the ark of safety. That is what saves. The ark of safety is Christ. So baptism will save you like Noah and his family were saved by the ark through water. So let me restate. I do not understand Peter's statement as teaching baptismal regeneration. Uh, that baptism in itself saves, but it is teaching that water baptism proclaims that this person's sins are forgiven, that this person has died and risen with Christ, that this person has a clear conscience toward God, and, this, and that this person is experiencing God's grace. These verses teach that the person who identifies with Jesus' death experiences, that person experiences a death to sin and a resurrection to life inside their person, and this work inside them of dying and rising is as Christ did. This is a mysterious work of God inside a person that is performed by God, by the Holy Spirit. And we do not know uh, 
We do not know the mechanics of that mysterious operation of God inside us that dyes us and resurrects us. We don't know the mysterious mechanics of it, how that's accomplished. Uh, the word might be the metaphysics of it. I don't know what the words are, but we don't know. It's mysterious. But the fact that it is mysterious doesn't change the reality of it as it's described in Scripture. So I have two more passages that expand on this idea of dying and rising with Christ. Uh, Romans 6, 1 to 6. And my summary statement about it is the person who is baptized uh, immersed, identifies with Christ's death and resurrection is delivered from the practice of sin. So here are the verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. And the answer is certainly not. And then a question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Another question. Nor do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And in the baptismal after each of these are baptized, unless I forget, I will repeat these statements from Romans 6 after each person, unless I forget. This idea that even as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so you have been and are being raised from the dead inside to newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, whatever that is, was crucified with him, that the body of sin, whatever that is, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So we are free because of this dying and rising. So these verses begin with a question that naturally follows the thought at the end of the previous chapter, Romans 5. And that thought being that where sin abounded because of Adam's disobedience, the fall, grace abounded much more because of Christ's obedience. If Adam's disobedience 
if it is true that grace abounds because of Christ's obedience, are believers then free to sin that grace may abound? That's the question. So Christ has done this marvelous work according to Romans 5. Christ has done this marvelous work through obedience to the Father that far exceeds it is much more wonderful for the good than the bad that Adam did through his disobedience. And if that's the case, if grace abounds so much more, can we just sin and grace will cover it? That's the question and the answer is no. So Paul says no, and then he proceeds in the following verses to explain that the believer is not free to live in sin because the believer has died to sin just as Christ died to sin and for sin on the cross. So, baptism. Uh, the idea of baptism in these verses in Romans 6 is that we are immersed in Christ. Baptism in these verses refers to identifying with Christ, being immersed in Christ's death and resurrection. It does not refer to water baptism. It is not talking about water baptism. And I just want to add here when I was at Liberty University, several teachers in their explanation of Romans 6 said, which surprised me, that it is not talking about water baptism. And I thought, surely they would think it was, but they said no. It is not talking about water baptism being immersed in water. It is like saying that someone is immersed in their work. Or that someone is experiencing a baptism by fire because they are going through a difficult trial. A person who is immersed in Christ is immersed into his death. The idea here is that the person who is converted has experienced Christ's death. At, at conversion, God immerses the believer into Christ's death. This is the work Christ, the work of God. But just as a converted person is immersed in Christ's death, the converted person is also raised up, resurrected. And this is, as I've said before, a miraculous operation in the believer's heart by God. We do not die ourselves. We do not resurrect ourselves. God dies us. God resurrects us. This is his work in our hearts because we trust. Okay, I probably should say something about the meaning of the old man dying and the body of sin being destroyed. And I believe the old man is referring to whoever we were before conversion in Adam that that has died, 
So we are now a new person. And the body of sin, I believe, refers to the habits of sin that we practice before we were converted. And these all die. Okay, now I need to hasten to say the problem with what I just said or the challenge of it is that even though God dies us and the old man and body of sin die in God dying us, our habits do not just die. And we still have thoughts, we still have desires, we still have ongoing habits that we had before conversion. And these have to change in the process of living. And this is, this is a process of sanctification. So this is talking about here action, a miraculous action that God does in the heart at conversion that then continues on in sanctification. Okay, the last verses I have, uh, the last passage is Colossians 2, 11 to 15. And uh, my summary here is the person who is immersed in Christ is circumcised by Christ. So the verses read, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's talking about conversion, the miraculous, mysterious work of God in the heart. In Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of sins of the flesh, same phrase, body of sin, says in Romans 6, put it, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you, were all, which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, meaning in his cross. And again, these are somewhat challenging verses. So these verses in Colossians 2, I believe, are saying the same thing as in Romans 6, that the person who is in Christ has died and risen with Christ. This is an operation God has performed 
inside the person. The person who is immersed in Christ is circumcised by Christ. This is a circumcision of the heart that results in deliverance from the body of sins of the flesh. Same phrase as Romans 6. The, the believer has been delivered from any obligation to serve sin or the devil or flesh, evil desire. The believer is delivered from the obligation. There is no obligation to serve sin. So another idea here is that everything that was against us our sins have it whatever. Everything that was against us was born to the cross by Christ and nailed to the cross. You know, for some people it might help if you just had a visual of that. If you could visualize Whatever was against me, whatever kept me in bondage to evil, that was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. The idea he bore to the cross. It got nailed to the cross and it died with Christ on the cross. That's the idea here. By being united with Christ and experiencing Christ's death and resurrection, the believer is forgiven, is no longer under judgment for violating God's law, and also every sin and habit has died with Christ on the cross, nailed to the cross with Christ. So the death to sin that Christ died on the cross is being worked in us by our death with Christ in conversion, and this is a result of trusting in Christ. Colossians 2 says a person is raised with Christ through faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And finally, verse 15 says that Christ has disarmed principalities and powers of meaning the devil and evil and all of his helpers that wage war against God's people. Christ has disarmed all of these powers and they are defeated. But they are defeated for each of us only if we are in this trusting relationship with Christ. And Christ's resurrection demonstrates, demonstrates his authority over his enemies. And those of us who live in the resurrection are experiencing this defeat of the devil.
Okay, my summary. I want to say a little more about whether it is the water of baptism that saves or is it identification and union with Christ's death and resurrection that saves. So this was a major question in the 16th century among various people, not just Anabaptists, Lutherans, uh, Reformed. Uh, should baptism be considered purely testimonial? Person testifies to a good conscience that something has already happened. Or should baptism be considered as personally redemptive? So we're saved when we're baptized. And in the end, uh, this is the best I can determine from reading. Uh, our forefathers, Mennonites, Anabaptists, uh, tried to combine both of these ideas by saying that a person must have a good conscience prior to baptism. And that a person must experience being transplanted into the kingdom of Christ and experience the death and resurrection of Christ, either prior to or at baptism. And I think their answer to the question was uh, in part a recognition that there's a lot of mystery in what is happening in conversion and in baptism and in a, and just letting the mystery of it stand. Uh, there are modern questions to baptism. Uh, should baptism happen at conversion or awake instruction? Should baptism be connected only to conversion or to church membership? Um, there are these kinds of questions that I don't think uh, people in the 1500s really pondered too much. So I'll just say both in the New Testament and the early, in the 1500s, Anabaptists, Mennonites, uh, baptism was soon after conversion. It was. That's a historical thing. Uh, baptism was soon after conversion, and baptism was connected to belonging to the people who were present and participated in their baptism. Uh, meaning that the understanding was that in baptism, these people are incorporated into the visible body of Christ. And that they belonged to the people before whom they made a confession that Jesus is my Savior and Lord. That's who they belong to. Uh, I also want to say that the questions surrounding conversion and baptism do not have easy answers. 
in part because the work of God in their heart to redeem us and to die us and resurrect us. Uh, this work is a mysterious work that cannot be fully analyzed by human reason. And yet, what we can say with assurance is that Christ is able to redeem and die and resurrect each person who trusts Christ and surrenders to Christ as Savior and Lord. And God does this process of saving both at conversion, in baptism, and day by day, moment by moment in life. This is what the Bible teaches. Finally, since dying is to sin and sinful habits and being resurrected to a new way of life begins at conversion but continues as a process throughout life, uh, I want to say to all of us and maybe especially to uh, Vincent and Winston, Winter and Bethany, I got them in order there, backwards. Do not, okay, do not become discouraged or lose faith because you have not yet become perfected. Jesus is still alive and present in your heart and life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will continue to redeem and save you one day at a time. And that is what salvation is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that you're present by the Holy Spirit. I pray you would bless each one who is here in the hearing and in the doing of your word. As you work by your spirit in your mysterious way, I pray you would bless these four young believers and bless our time here as we go forth. Uh, meet us each one and accomplish your purposes in our hearts. And thank you. Amen.